Welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and today I'm sharing a follow-up conversation with Dr. John Blaska to discuss the public health crisis as it stands today. But before I get to that, I first want to thank you all for all of your messages of support, your comments and feedback, and for sharing your own stories with me. I've said it before, but the purpose of this podcast is to help connect us through conversation, and I think that's needed more than ever right now. So please continue to reach out to me, post your comments online, and if you haven't yet, please share your pandemic experience with me and your fellow listeners. I'm gathering stories to share in an upcoming episode, and you can share your story with me by leaving me a voice message on my Google Voice account at one five one zero five four five. 3173, or by going to thenakedtruthwcs.com slash COVID to send me a written story. Whether you leave a voicemail or send me a message, please tell me your name, your location, what your situation is, how you're feeling, and how you're managing your relationship with dance during this period. Hopefully, hearing other stories will help us all feel a little less alone during this time and maybe help us find new ways to cope and adapt. Speaking of coping and adapting, I recently invited Dr. Divi Ravindranath back to the show. Longtime listeners will know Dr. Divi from our episodes on mental health and expectations. Divi was kind enough to take some time to chat with me about how to maintain our emotional and psychological well-being during this time. That episode will be released next week, so stay tuned. For now, I'm excited to share this conversation with a friend and fellow dancer, Dr. John Blaska. I first chatted with Dr. Blaska on my first episode about the coronavirus outbreak, and I guess great minds think alike, because just as I was thinking of doing another episode with him to chat about what we've learned since our last discussion, he reached out to me to suggest the same, in order to keep listeners like you and our community at large informed. For those of you who missed that episode, Dr. John Blaska is a healthcare professional here in Minneapolis, and he's also a member of our local dance community. In this episode, we discuss what we've learned about this coronavirus and COVID-19, the response to this public health crisis, particularly here in the United States, how people should protect themselves, how to process all of the different information that's out there, and how we might return to dancing. He points out a need for reverence for what's happening, respecting the issue and the seriousness of this crisis, while also being pragmatic and not letting fear overcome us. At the end of the interview, I asked him what gives him hope, and his message is one that should help all of us see the opportunity in this moment. Please note, this interview is not meant to be a source of medical care. If you have questions about your own health, you should talk with your own medical professional that knows your situation better for personalized information and care. This interview is also not meant to scare anyone, but to provide some information so people can make decisions for themselves. People should take this information and then do what is comfortable for them. With that said, here is my very informative conversation with Dr. John Blaska. Dr. John Blaska, welcome back to the show. Wish it was better circumstances, but glad to be sitting down with you again. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice if we were doing this, um, you know, on a cocktail on a, on a, on a patio someplace, but right. Uh, but uh, yes, um, I'm happy to at least be here to chat with you and hopefully we can we can offer some good information for your listeners. Excellent. How are you doing? And how has this pandemic been affecting you? 
Um, personally, it's it's been demanding for sure. So there's been a lot of uh, uh, the chaos between both clinic. Um, uh, you know, my my role for my patients is I have to kind of understand the trajectory of their care. I have to look at their history. Um, I have to anticipate if I haven't seen them recently. I have to anticipate where they might be today, and where they might be headed um, as um, care is you know suspended for some of them, and or um, habits uh, under stress. Um, and so I have to kind of anticipate where they are, and you know figure out what resources they might need at a certain time, and um, and so whether it be directing them or whether it be actually caring for them directly. Um, that's part of my equation. And then you throw in the business stuff, which is all over the place right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, hasn't, there's been a lack of sleep for sure in this process. Yeah. How has it affected me directly? It, fortunately, um, I, I, I don't know anyone, um, you know, in dire straits from this. Uh, we certainly have uh, people who are suspected and, um, we're doing our best to kind of keep them healthy and get them recovered. Um, so I've been fortunate for sure in that case to not, you know, not know anyone that's been uh, dramatically affected. Um, I, I have friends that have been, so I guess that's how my, my link to this you know, has been so far. Yeah. Have any of your patients mentioned to you that they've been infected? Uh, there's a, there's been a few. Yeah. So we, I think we've, we were probably, you know, um, supporting people with about four cases mm-hmm. and none of them have been confirmed because they didn't quite meet the criteria for testing. But the nature of, of the symptoms and the length of symptoms, so the fact that they've lingered for two or three weeks suggests that this is probably what they had. And so then as far as, you know, uh, you know other patients, you know, directly, it, there, hasn't been, there hasn't been too much. We have people who are essential workers. And so there are, you know, that stress. So I think a lot of people probably had this a couple weeks ago where they weren't sleeping very well and they had this kind of feverish like symptom or a cough that they were who were worried about or and so you're you're dealing with a lot of people that are processing information in the headlines and and um and they have an odd cough and and then they 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 begin to worry that they may be coming down with it. So, you know, that's probably the biggest thing um that we're probably dealing with. But fortunately, Minnesota has has reacted quite well, so we're you know slightly spoiled where we're at right now. Yeah. So if we can maintenance that space, that would be great. But we, it'd be nice to always question whether you know it could have been worse. Um, that would have been a much preferable space to be in, uh, looking back in hindsight in in you know six months or a year. So, right. You mentioned that you had a couple of patients who weren't acute enough to get testing. Can you talk a little more about that? What are the criteria for testing and what's your feeling about how many people aren't making the cut? Yeah, it's, I, so I don't know what, where the line is for, for the testing. Cause like, so Minnesota opened a number of testing sites and they were ultimately closed quite quickly because we didn't get the federal support we were hoping to get. Mm. Um, and, and there might be other details that I don't, I'm not privy to, so, so I don't want to draw any complete conclusions on that. But uh, we did have drive-through testing that was open and closed within a week or so. And so a lot of it was um, severity that I know that people weren't, uh, they didn't have severe enough symptoms to be tested. Um, other people, they didn't have the the contact, you know, kind of tracing element, meaning they, they weren't traveling in, in recent times. So they were rejected because of that, um, because of, they didn't, you know, meet the exposure criteria. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, but the rest of it, it'd be interesting to know exactly why so many are not being tested. You know, the supply line I know is a big factor. Mm-hmm. And so part of the challenges in the U.S. is the FDA approval and, and CDC guidelines and everything. 
Um, there's only so much we can do as far as uh, approved tests in the U.S. So going to another country to get their tests um, because because that wasn't uh, set up and approved, uh, we weren't able to to cross those boundaries. That's a whole public health infrastructure issue, and, and that's probably the biggest thing we're seeing with this is is a real failure in public health infrastructure of having the the network in place of, of seeing this early, shutting things down or adapting early, making sure supply lines are, are efficient and effective. So that's that's probably uh, where we're seeing the most challenge with this in general. And that's probably probably the best conclusion to make as to why people aren't getting tested at the rate we should be testing them. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to ask you more about the infrastructure piece. But first, I want to revisit what we know about this virus. We last sat down because, gosh, it was six, seven weeks ago when right. this outbreak really started hitting here in the U.S. And we've obviously learned a lot since then. I imagine some information that we talked about last time is the same, but we've also learned a lot about how it's spreading, who it's affecting, what the different trends are. So what can you tell us about what we've learned since then? What trends are we seeing and what are we learning about how this virus spreads? So the trends are, are consistent, which is a, the, probably the best thing for this, um, is that because if we have the consistent trends, we can actually build a strategy to, to handle it. Uh, we still need more data to, to handle the volume at which this has impacted our society. Mm-hmm. So the hard part about the infection part right now is the speculation. I mean, you, you get a, you know, a lot of things you'll see where, you know, a sneeze can travel, whatever, 20 some feet or something like that. And and those are ideal conditions. So they're assessing worst case scenario, you know, the, the infection rate of, of someone picking it up off another surface. You know, those are generally low because this is still not the flu. So just like we talked about last time, this is not the flu, but it has the same, a very similar structure to the flu, meaning it has a lipid envelope. So the hygiene portion of this um, has been pretty consistent. And, and the Mayo, I think, are doing a pretty good job with their information to let people know as to how um, this spreads and, and demand. Mm-hmm. And so it's generally going to be close quarters as to where or where or why this has been challenged. I'm sure there's outlier information where someone picked it up off a surface or and happened to touch their nose or whatever. Um, and so hopefully we'll have more of that information. My advocacy in all this is like the la- what people have been doing in the last few weeks um, is what we should have been doing for forever with regards to the flu season, with regards to the cold, you know, cold season even. And um, too many people try to go to work when they're sick. And I don't understand for sure this isn't our issue um, society-wise that we need to talk about. But but people, some people have to go to work and that that's a risk, you know. And so when, when people uh, weren't feeling well, if we were in a habit of if we people weren't feeling well, they could stay home. That would have done a lot for our, our our numbers, and so the rest the rest of it's kind of a, it's a hygiene and a reverence type of thing. So we have to make sure our hygiene is good, and that's washing our hands. And so sometimes when people are talking about wearing gloves, gloves can give us overconfidence sometimes. So then we tend to be a little bit um, uh, relaxed in our practices, and gloves should be changed at any time there's potential infection, and or the gloves should be washed. Which if the gloves are going to be washed, then you might as well wash your hands. And so there are specific instances there. So I don't want to negate uh, what people are doing for personal comfort and and or personal exposure. But, you know, hygiene is really quite important. Mm-hmm. Um, and having re- reverence for what this is and that well, we can't be in the attitude that um, uh, a few symptoms here and there is something we can just wait and see what might happen. 
we need to address things earlier um, as as you know for normal cold and flu season and then this uh, is going to likely add another season it'll be interesting to see if this is a a a one and done thing but it's i you know it'd be i'm guessing we're going to start seeing a coronavirus type of season you know i think there's at least that potential and so hopefully we can get get it uh get ahead of it just like we can with with flu and treat it accordingly you mentioned outliers and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on how seriously people should take these reports so for instance i saw one last week that coronavirus can stick to your shoes for a while or i've seen that somebody saw that coronavirus can survive on cardboard for up to a week so if you're getting a package so how seriously should people take this and how can they better understand where they should really take action Right. So the question would be is what is survival? So like on the, was it the Diamond Princess uh, cruise ship, I think. So there was a headline that says 17 days uh, later, they found you know the coronavirus on, on the cruise ship, right? After they had clean, cleared it out. So when they went in to clean, they, they swabbed the surfaces to see if they could pick up. They weren't picking up live viruses. They were picking up desiccated viruses. They were picking up RNA fragments. So they knew it was there, but it had degraded to the point where it was no longer infectious. Right. And so the the survival on cardboard, we have to know, what does that mean? Are we talking about an actual infectious agent? Are we talking about um, um, a num- uh, enough infectious agent to actually for someone to pick it up and actually catch the, the, the disease? And so it, it becomes very difficult there. And, and the data shows you can go back and forth as much as you like. And so you have to retreat to the place where you know you can do something about it. And so the place to retreat to is good hygiene. So distance is part of that, certainly because avoiding getting contaminated is part of hygiene. But yeah, and then having you know reverence or respect for it so that we don't become nonchalant about it, right? Um, and so that's where the challenge with PPE is as well. Um, is, is a lot of people are wearing masks that aren't necessarily well fitted. They're wearing masks and they're pulling it down to, you know, have a drink or, um, talk to, talk to people, which is exactly when you should have your mouth covered. If you're going to wear it, uh, talk, you want to talk to people through it. I don't want to diminish any of it. Um, it just becomes really quite convoluted um, as to what exactly everyone should be doing. So the best thing is to what people should feel comfortable and confident. Um, because the more confident you are, um, the more and and including the reverence for it, I think people will be thoughtful as they're going through their day, so they won't necessarily touch everything on the on the shelf. What I've been hearing, which is good, is people when they are picking something off the shelf at the grocery store, they're picking exactly what they want, and they're only taking that rather than you know um, you know reading labels as they might you know do so and putting stuff back on the shelf. So that part I think is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the reverence. And then, um, you know, good protection is, is, is really the important part. And so if a person's going to wear gloves, understand that the gloves pick up stuff. So they, they, um, they either need to be cleaned or they need to be disposed of. And hopefully people are disposing them uh, properly and not just throwing them on the ground. Um, obviously these are, for something in clinic, I have a, I see uh, dozens and dozens of gloves go in the, in the garbage every day and it's like the waste is on my mind as far as that goes and um, as far as like the cloth masks people need to let them either air out and dry uh, or they need to wash them um, and so having kind of you know respect and reverence for that too is important so wearing the same mask every day um, doesn't necessarily 
improve our odds, you know, and as far as that goes. So having multiple masks and rotating them would be important. How concerned should people be about taking items into their homes? So if you buy groceries, should you be wiping some of those down? If you get a package, should you wipe that down or leave it to leave it for a while? Right. So there's two there's two ways that we assess risk, which is absolute risk and relative risk. And absolute risk, the odds are are way way low, right? Absolute risk, uh, as far as the, like the population goes, is how many people are infected with this in the population of the in the entire world, right? And so that percentage is still relatively low. So when you when you're doing absolute risk with our as far as packages or or items. Um, the risk, the absolute risk goes down even further because we're talking about billions and billions of items. It's the, 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 the challenge is the relative risk. And that's the exposure if your neighbor has it or if your roommate has it or, you know, that type of stuff. So the question would be is, is you know, what's the exposure of, of someone working at the store and stocking the shelves or, you know, um, delivering your package? And um, and I think most companies are taking this seriously, and I think they're. I mean, other risks should be very low, and so I don't want to make promises at all. But that's where I think comfort comes from, and so like people should do what's comfortable. I do get concerned where people are probably using more chemicals than they probably need to, and so then people now are gonna. Um, I've seen blisters on hands. I've seen. So I have seen people doing too much um, with with the chemicals to try to abate this. So they're actually injuring themselves in the process of trying to be protective, and so and that that uh, is counterintuitive um, and would raise the risk, whether it's a risk related to, to the COVID or not. Um, it's certainly risk of of needing medical interventions. Soap and water is really quite good. Soap and water and rubbing, you're going to get you know high percentage uh, of what we call clean. And um, sterilization uh, or sanitization and disinfection is really hard to do, and you have to kind of do it in a lab. And so what you're really looking for is clean, meaning you're trying to shed as much of the virus as possible. To try to kill the virus is a really difficult thing to do. And so we want to uh, assume that clean is the best strategy uh, from, an, uh, from both the relative risk and the absolute risk. Yeah. What do we understand about this in terms of transmission while asymptomatic? It seems like other diseases are transmissible most when symptoms are present, and yet this is one where it seems like people are transmitting it without any symptoms. How does that change the game? This is where I would like to have more data, right? Mm. And so uh, in my experience in clinic, um, there's a lot of people who aren't aware they have symptoms. And, and so they would say, oh, I'm fine, right? And then you start asking some questions and they go, oh, I guess you have symptoms. Mm. <laughs> With the asymptomatic carriers, like you have to have someone who has enough viral load to be able to pass it along, right? So asymptomatic suggests that the, and, and the ability for them to spread suggests that they're reproducing the virus. Um, and I'm open to understanding that a lot better and how that's playing out in this, in this manner. It's one of these things where the ghost in the machine, you know, spooks a lot of people and, and, and if it helps us have reverence, no problem. If it helps us have fear, we have a problem, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we have to, we have to really dig into that information and we don't do that very well. We don't gather that information very well. A good example is like, so with people with fever, um, so there's a lot of people that, that don't have 98.6 as their normal temperature. And so when someone has like 97, you know, maybe it's a, ni- a high 97 uh, normal temperature, 
um, a 99 fever is two degrees and you're at a, you know, you're at a, you know, a high, a reasonably high fever for people. Mm-hmm. And so a person with a 99 fever might get, you know, neglected as having symptoms and, and to differentiate that requires enough questioning and, or, you know, differentiation to be able to make those conclusions. Right. And we just, we don't do this normally. And this kind of goes back to the public health infrastructure you know, we just, you know, we, we tend to, we tend to try to rule out versus tend to, to seeking to rule in mm-hmm. and because, you know, ruling in has other consequences. And that's, a, I think that's a, that's a much broader, you know, kind of conversation. But when you, when you are suggesting that someone has a, um, even a subclinical diagnosis, um, you're suggesting that that person requires treatment um, and arguably they do. Um, the question is, we don't necessarily treat those. So then, then, then what? So then we, we've given a person a diagnosis, but we say, well, go home and we don't, you know, because we can't do anything. And that reality has been very prevalent in this whole process is that because we have a lot of people who are definitively sick mm-hmm. being sent home to go, well, um, hopefully it won't get worse. Um, and, and that's a, definitely a problem that's being revealed uh, with this, with, with, with COVID. Yeah. So speaking of the data, Something that is really important in times like these is testing. And as we said, not everybody seems to be getting tests. But I was also reading about how, one, the United States currently, I think this week, actually started leveling out on new cases. But there's an argument being made that the reason we're leveling out is because we've just maxed out on testing. Like, I think we've been doing 145,000 tests per day for the last few days. And so... Of course, we're maxing out, but the positivity rate, the number of tests that are done that come back positive is pretty high, which suggests that we're not testing enough of the population to really have an accurate reading. Right. What's your feeling about the testing situation as it stands in the United States now and where we should be moving going forward? Yeah, this is for me, this, you know, this is uh, my my personal opinion. We've been horrible in this regard and, and, um, you know, we, we talk about having data, you know, run our lives, you know, with, with, you know, our phones and our apps and our, you know, all this type of stuff. And, you know, we've, we've just, you know, kind of blew it on this one. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, having the data, having more data, I mean, I think Germany would have been a, a good example. So they have a very high confirmation rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and only until this last week, um, you know, this last week is when uh, we've seen their, their numbers start to spike with regards to deaths. Um, but because they had such proficient testing, they were honest. They showed the actual data. And I think probably people made better decisions. So if someone got confirmed, you know, they probably stayed home. And so they probably didn't affect, infect as many people. Um, and so um, and their whole target was they wanted to keep the, the, the reproduction value to one. And if they're if they having a bad example, they want they want it, you know, they don't want it to be at one point three or higher, which is like half of what you know, we're seeing for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I like, think they were, they were anticipating like if it was 1.1 reproduction value, they would run out of resources by like October. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a 1.2 to be July, if it was 1.3 to be June. And so it shows you how, um, you know, reducing just those fractions of, of reproductions uh, matter. And, and that, that testing, I think, was, was really where their success was. Now we have to move in and we have to make up for it because we've been delaying this um, and we're behind on it. Now we have to jump ahead and, and over overdo it elsewhere. So this is going back to the public health infrastructure. This is the cost of not having that. 
Uh, when we didn't act early enough, we could have done a lot less um, and gotten much better results and and um, and taken care of people and protected people. Um, but now that we keep you know, delaying it, uh, the costs we have to invest even more to get ahead of it because the only way out of this uh, safely is with more data. Mm-hmm. So now we have to not only test people who might have it, uh, we have to test people who possibly did have it. Um, and, and the reality is we have to test as many people as possible to get that. I was thinking about, so William Deming, who is a statistician, his algorithms, I'm sure there's probably better algorithms uh, these days. It's been a while since I've been in a statistics class, but but um, you know, William Deming was great you know, at helping helping us devise strategies for, for testing our population without necessarily having to test everyone. But I'd be willing to bet we're going to have to use um, you know at least some of what he was talking about uh, of, of getting a good enough statistical sample so that we can confidently say a person either has had it, has it right now, or has not had it. And because of the, the, the testing itself isn't completely reliable, there's going to be another gray area where people are going to have uh, false negatives. And so um, those are all the things we have to navigate, but we only are going to be able to do that with uh, catching up on the data at this point. Yeah. Um, so the, test, the testing thing was was bad for sure, and so that the hard part about this, the the testing too is the the supplies and um, and being able to do it effectively. So to get the swab to actually have you know an effective swab, you have to you have to kind of get that gag reflex because um, it has to be there long enough and it has to be you know wiping the tissue long enough to be able to actually pick up on it. There's a lot of people who failed the nasal swab who after they, their, they, uh, the intubation was removed um, so that they actually recovered enough for the intubation removed. When they tested the, the mucus on the, on the tube, they were able to actually confirm the test at that point. So a person was intubated with a, with a negative test, and then when they came out um, of that uh, intubation, then they were able to get the positive test because of the mucus uh, swab. So. So this is the challenge of, of dealing with this, is, and this is why you want to be ahead of it, because you're never going to have perfectly clean data on this. There's just too many variables. And so what you have to do is you have to anticipate, and you have to be able to be on the front end of that, that trajectory. Right. So we've talked about the testing aspect of our public health infrastructure. What other actions would you like to see our local, state, or federal government take to get this more under control? Um, so I think that this is where we're spoiled in Minnesota. I think we're we're as on track as I think as we can be. So I, I think you know the only thing that we're missing in Minnesota is the data from testing. As far as um, you know, places like New York and in California, I mean, you're you're kind of dealing with the aftermath of like a tornado. Like where you know where do you begin? And so it's you you want to create stability first, so people can kind of trust and have a place to fall back to. And then you want to kind of put feelers out into different areas and say, okay, let's go check this out and see what happens if we start doing this. And then you can roll out a much more, you know, uh, robust plan, you know, from that. But it's like, how do you clean up, you know, where do you begin the, to clean up the mess? And so part of this too is like there's multiple waves to this. Um, you have people who are acutely sick right now. You have people who have been, but they're not um, acute as far as like a seven day, you know, or like being affected right now, but they have acute conditions. Maybe they're coming out of surgery. So their care is still acute. You have people who may have been heading into surgery and it was kind of a, a somewhat urgent issue for them. Those people are, have been suspended and they need care. They need some sort of support and or stabilization during this time. 
Uh, and hopefully they don't have an episode that makes it you know, more urgent. And then you have people who have chronic conditions who have random or somewhat rhythmic reoccurrences of, of acute symptoms that the longer you go, we're enough weeks in, depending on where you are in the country, but four weeks, six weeks, you know, maybe longer is enough time for someone with a chronic condition to start having debilitating symptoms come back. And then they need a rescue of those symptoms. And that usually means urgent care or possibly the emergency room or, or something similar. And then you have a fourth wave, which is basically just the demand on everybody, the demand on the frontline workers who, who have navigated this as well as they could. And they're going to need um, the opportunity to be able to recover and have and just reconnect with their families. And but you have people who are, you know, being you know, the economics of this is is really debilitating, and demanding. And that's the last wave. That's certainly a way that wave is already happening, of course. Um, so you're going to have people that are because of those stressors are going to end up in more urgent need. But, you know, when we're all done with this, it's it's going to be, you know, that that exhaustion from the demands that we're going to have to care for as well in this process. And so that's where all the states, you know, it's good to see the states are kind of banding together because that will offer more consistency, especially ones that share trade routes as far as like highway type of uh, resources that I think will help um, make things a little more consistent. Because even if you have things stable, like in here in Minnesota, um, interstate commerce then makes it makes our space vulnerable again. And so we have to be thoughtful of that. And I think you're seeing that with the pork plants along I-90, both in Minnesota and South Dakota. Um, so that's likely, you know, a trade route or a, a, a trucking lane that um, um, we'll probably find out more information in the future here. Yeah. So when we talk about flattening the curve, the whole idea is to minimize the sort of spiking of the number of cases so that our healthcare system can handle the volume. But my understanding is that flattening the curve doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be less cases, but that it will be more even over time. Correct. The infection rate will be slower such that our healthcare system can handle the volume that will have the capacity to respond. What does this look like in the long run? If we do flatten the curve, what is your sense of how this plays out? How do we get back to, quote unquote, normal life? Where, where does the end of social distancing take place? What does that take? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the flattening of the curve is, you're right, is the part we have to kind of think about when we're, when we're having the spike is that you have all the, the downstream effects of that, right? Because you have people who um, become nervous and anxious, um, and then that creates other urgent, um, either actual urgent, meaning that it causes some sort of injury to the body that requires urgent care, or it creates the appearance of urgency, and so they're getting critical care, and even though they might have not necessarily need the full critical care, which then changes where resources are going. And um, and so flattening the curve is definitely mandatory for reducing the use of ICU beds and ventilators and other resources there. But you want to extend it as long as possible because part of the only strategy we have is somewhat uh, the herd immunity. So the more the more time that passes, the more people are going to be infected. And yes, the more people are going to recover. And so hopefully we'll see that more people had it and recovered um, than we um, anticipated or we've, we've currently assessed. And we'll see what we what wish is that some people have some level of immunity. And that helps with stabilization of this over time. 
And so the, the as far as the rollout of, of like public connections, it's very difficult, right? And so it's, you know, you have to kind of keep in mind from a business standpoint, can a restaurant survive on having a third of the people in the restaurant that, you know, they would normally have? Um, is it even worth it for them to open if they're, if they're at that level? Um, and so a lot of people say, well, I want to support them and, and that's great. But some people won't feel comfortable going to sit in a restaurant. Some people, um, um, but and then, like I said, the, the just the economies of scale um, to have a third of a business running might not be sufficient for people to you know make ends meet. So those factors are certainly involved. The contact portion of this is going to be nebulous for a long, long time. So we certainly have um, strategies uh, based on information of, of infection, but then it's also people's comfort. So and so in the in the next you know, three months or six months, uh, a lot of it's going to be, you know, based on what we know of, of the infections in the area. So that should help keep people more at a distance. Um, and we might be using barriers. So masks and, and um, you know, the plexiglass, um, you know, screens you see at the grocery store and that type of stuff. And then, yeah, then it's going to be comfort. And so whether people feel comfortable, I think so, you know, with regards to uh, close social settings like bars and that type of stuff, uh, that's a that's a that's going to be a, a, an animal for sure. I just because, you know, how do you how do you execute well, you know, there? And I think we have to look to you know, like South Korea. Taiwan is having a little bit of resurgence now that they're lifting you know, protocols. And so um, South Korea might be the, the model we want to look for. So the qualification is hopefully they don't have an R spike. So that's that's kind of what we have to look for is trying to get this these you know life back to normal. So the absolute risk is still in our favor. Uh, the relative risk is is the nebulous one that, that everyone has to play defensive against. So I've been reading about different plans that at least for here in America, how to get us quote unquote back to normal. And the four plans that I was reading about the American Enterprise Institute, Center for American Progress, the Paul Romer plan and the Harvard Center for Bioethics plan. They all sort of talk about phases where the first phase is extreme social distancing, like what we're experiencing now. Then the second phase would be some easing of social distancing, kind of what you're talking about, like maybe restaurants selectively open with people spread apart. But even then, we run the risk of having to close things up again if outbreaks start happening. That's our part. And then the third phase would be the end of social distancing. But the plans all suggest that that would require, one, a, a huge increase in testing from where we are now, potentially beyond what we're actually capable of in some cases. And the other factor that's required is a reliable vaccine or treatment that's readily available, widely available. The last time you were sitting down with me to talk about this, we talked about how a vaccine is 12 to 18 months away. And some people are saying that may even be optimistic given how this right. virus is evolving and how many different strains there are now. What do you think is the timeline for getting to that third phase? How long do you think it'll be before we can have a reliable treatment or vaccine that allows us to start gathering again? Right. Yeah, so the, the, I think the challenge, uh, so the challenge with treatment is that there's two, we have two things we, we have to kind of consider there. So um, one, there are treatments for a virus, and then there are treatments for um, the demand the virus puts on the body. And, and so the rule out concept in the U.S. is kind of uh, against the, the concept of treating symptoms to improve outcomes. 
Um, so we certainly have people, I mean, so we have uh, university level groups that are practicing symptom-based uh, treat, you know, strategies. So a lot of people hear them as integrative uh, healthcare, and I use that as small i, small h. Um, so sometimes we use integrative as a branding, and it's not necessarily as true as we'd like it to be. But uh, an integrative uh, model is going to assess as many variables as possible for the individual, and is going to try to mitigate the the demand any disease is putting on the body, and so in this case, the virus. And so um, one of our failings in this space is that we are not treating people early enough in the process, for sure. We're not helping them in the process. And so the closer people get to being sick uh, at the seven-day mark, the, the chances of them going into the hospital are very, very high. And um, the closer they get to 15 days, the odds are definitely not in their favor. So that part, and people will give you know, a lot of debate to what I just said, but the conversation needs to be quite thorough in that space to be, for us to be really effective for rolling that out. We can't just do random things. We have to do things based on a treatment strategy, based on a diagno- by diagnosis, and then a treatment strategy that's appropriate to our, our, our needs. And so it's just not random stuff you might find on, you know, on Twitter or something like that, that if someone says this, this helps. So um, if someone says this helps, it's probably not likely to be true. You need to have a strategy, and that means you're adapting to the specific needs of an individual when you're treating symptoms. So um, then as regards to, you know, treating the virus itself, you know, it's probably going to be a while there yet, too. I mean, we, we certainly have not seen, we, we've seen people certainly debate uh, about what, what works and what, you know, what might be working and what might not be working. Um, most of the ones that you see in the, in the paper in the last few weeks uh, have been tried since the get-go. So we saw them in Japan, we saw them in China, we saw them in India, I think even South Korea. And the, the window of application, so the therapeutic window of, of applying those um, is probably the biggest challenge is when to apply them and then, you know, the results from that. And so the challenge with that, too, is that you're doing this, you're doing these trials in, in a space that's not fully placebo-controlled, double-blind study. And so the data you're looking for or your data you're gathering you got to be really careful about the presumptions you make out of that data. You might be able to look for trends to say, oh, yes, we're, we seem to be having the experiential uh, evidence. Um, and so let's let's because you want someone to get better and you don't want them to get worse. Applying that might be OK in an emergency situation. But the assumption that it's a cure, that's a long ways off. I mean, we're, we don't have a good track record as far as, you know, curing the flu or curing a cold. So we should assume that this will follow that same trend. So the, the, the vaccine part of it is probably our, our, our best bet for um, broad comfort. And so by the time you have the vaccine, the question would be is where is herd immunity at that point from people actually being affected? And then um, has it morphed enough that it's a different virus by the time, you know, we figure out the proper vaccine? The hard part, even, even from a production standpoint, once we know the vaccine, um, it takes months to be able to ramp up millions of doses. So it's it's going to be a challenge there. And, and people are going to feel good on when they see a headline of certain things. And then they're going to feel bad when they see a negative headline with, with regards to the same information. So people have to be careful riding that wave and just understand the best thing is really patience and kind of fall back to what you can do. Spacing has to do with comfort. And so same thing with hygiene having reverence for what you're doing. So where what what points of contact are you making with a door handle or with a 
you know, um, with those type of things. And so if you're in your home and you have been in your home for most of the time, you should trust that everything's probably pretty clean. You're probably pretty safe. So you don't necessarily need to scrub everything down all the time. You should have a clean home because that's just good hygiene and, and helps with foodborne illnesses and all that type of stuff. But that's kind of the hard part about this, you know, as we go forward. So keeping all of that in mind, what are the implications for social dancing in both the short and long term? What kind of timeframes are we looking at for resuming social dancing? Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think you know, I, I think the the best thing for the community to talk about is comfort. Is like how do you how do you make sure everyone in the equation is comfortable, right? And so the weakest link is the highest risk, right? And so the people who don't want to acknowledge good hygiene. That's where, you know, you're going to have some issues. You know, dancing with masks might be a a reasonable option. I think the challenge there is that you're talking about, you know, exertion and breathing through a mask isn't necessarily the most comfortable thing, let alone is is the person going to get dizzy because they're not actually taking enough oxygen and that type of stuff. And so... So I think the biggest thing the community can talk about right now is just talk about, okay, let's run as many scenarios as possible. So, like, if, you know, when I'm... You know, when I'm planning for a, a patient that has a certain you know, condition or something like that, I'm walking through in my mind, what are all the possible influential factors? Um, is this person going to require, you know, mobility support? Right. If so, that means we got to think about stairs. We got to think about access points. We got to think about parking. Right. And so the, I think the dance community needs to walk through these scenarios on their own. It's like, okay, so if we were going to have, you know, once the guidelines are set from the community, from the state or uh, community level, walk through as many scenarios as possible, right? So if people are parking four blocks away and have to go through five doors to get to wherever they're going, you need to accommodate each one of those, right? So when you're, if you're going to have a, an event, um, even it's just a class. Well, so let's say you're having uh, an event that's below 10 people. So you're essentially going to have a class. Where are all the points of contact, right? And so you wipe down all the doors. And so then you have people uh, wash their hands. And then you maybe you have some you know, sanitizer in the room. Temperature readings are a reasonable option. But again, it'll be interesting to see where they say the cutoff is, right? So if, it's, if you have to have, do you have to have the 98.6 that we normally expect? There are a lot of variables there, um, so depending on where the temperature is taken, how it's taken, so the type of thermometer, you're going to get variables there. Um, and then if if someone has a normal temp of 97 and, you know, they're coming in at 99, is that within the bounds? Because like the level was said, you know, you, as long as you don't have a temperature of 100 or more. But guess what? If you're exercising too, your temperature is going to go up um, in that process too. Right. So the dance community needs to people need to kind of roundtable this and they need to walk through the scenarios of where vectors. So when you're calculating vectors is how an infectious agent is getting to the point of the class or to you as an individual. That's the best thing I think the, the community can start doing so that you have as many of these vectors understood as possible. Because then the next part is going to be having the conversations with the people who are coming to, you know, coming to your classes or coming to your events. How do you effectively ask them to engage? How do you ask them to care about themselves enough to care about others? And if everybody does that, odds will go in people's favor quite quickly. You know, I think that's how you begin your strategy. And then the last little bit, which is the, the risk you can't control, that's where you'll look to people providing guidelines for that. 
But I think the biggest thing is what is your what is your customer's experience? What are the vectors and how do you mitigate those as much as possible? So my feeling is that local dancing, because if we can contain the outbreak in certain localities, that local dancing potentially could resume within a few months, right. depending on how things play out. And again, that will be dependent on each locality and each jurisdiction and what's right and appropriate for them, right. as well as all the other things we talked about, like testing and treatment, the capacity of the healthcare system in that area. I feel like bigger events, weekend events, where people are traveling from different localities to one hotel yeah. is a much, much higher risk scenario. And I know I'm being kind of pessimistic, and I think I frightened people on the last episode by saying that I don't think those kind of events are going to be happening for for probably a year or more, because it would require a reliable treatment or a vaccine or herd immunity for us to have a low enough risk to make those possible, right? Because if we run through the scenarios of people, let's say even 200 people at a hotel, there are so many vectors and so many variables at play that even if one person has it in that hotel, you're putting everybody at risk to to get this. So until we're at a point where we have reliable treatment vaccine or herd immunity, I just think that's, I guess in my own personal opinion, not worth the risk or that there will be not enough people willing to take that risk to make the event viable financially. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I think that's pretty good assessment, actually. Yeah, I think I would say next summer is your best probably optimistic strategy for having a larger event. And then the question would be is, how do you qualify that? Because it kind of comes down to asking your your customer to your visitor to be honest and truthful and say, look out for me as much as I'm looking out for you. And that's the variable I don't I don't know if anyone has a great answer to because what one person may feel is, you know, I'm looking out for you is not necessarily sufficient to being actually looking out for someone. So I would I would hope by Christmas people would have a pretty good idea as to what to predict for next summer, meaning what I think we'll have enough data, um, enough reliable people who have seen infectious agents, you know, and and seen the dissipation of them will have people say, okay, yeah, this is definitively dissipating. We could probably go back to 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 normal, right? And, and the, the best case scenario would be is that a lot of these like SARS and MERS, you know, they, they surged and then they died away, right? Clearly, this is a much more significant surge. Does it follow that pattern though? Does it just kind of dissipate and, and go away and we don't see another variation for quite some time? Or does it morph enough where we have another round that's actually separate from, so it's not, you know, COVID-19, it's COVID-20 or 21 or something like that. And certainly there's speculation there whether they're, they're following the, the genetic profile. And I don't know if it's changed enough to cause a separate condition. I haven't seen if people are suggesting it, I guess to me that would be a flag. I would think that's a that's a conclusion that's just too easy to or too early to make. But as far as local events go, I think yeah, I think there's a reasonable opportunity to be able to pull some of that off. Um, I think again here in Minnesota, I think we have a, a unique situation that you know as things are lifted, you know the trend's going to still go up. We're still going to get more cases. If it doesn't spike for the summer, that would be great. But then we do have to worry about it for fall as the weather changes and people go more inside. But I think it might be possible for local events to thoughtfully walk through all the factors and devise a strategy where everyone that is coming is willing to commit to those those levels. 
you know, five hours of social dancing has its own risk versus uh, an hour long class too, right? So those are all factors that have to be kind of walked through and people will have to have those vectors in place so that when the data comes available, the information comes available, they can plug in that data to their models. I know it's probably not necessarily a ton of dance teachers that are ready to develop a, a vector model for <laughs> for their event, but it's a good business thing anyways. It's an odd business one in this case, but it's a good business thing anyways to know where your customers are coming from. So having those conversations are probably good for business in general. And then plugging the data in, in this case, you know, we're talking about infectious vectors is something that um, will be necessary, to be honest with you. If, if, If someone wants to have, wants to put together an event, right? The business part of it, yeah, is a whole nother animal. And I, and I empathize with those individuals who are trying to calculate how to have a business and a fun event because there is both elements to that. And we're seeing the cost of that demand right now, right, is, is how uh, business is interrupted by a health issue. So not to leave everybody on a down note <laughs> about events not resuming anytime soon, uh, what gives you hope right now? I have a a weird habit, I guess, now of being just pragmatic, you know, and that's just kind of been drilled in me after 10 years of practice and probably longer than that. You know, I've traveled. I did rounds in a hospital in Darajun in India, and I did um, one in, in Shanghai. And we had like TV around the corner and we had a polio case in India. And you see, you know, what is needed to protect people, right? And then you also see where the bubble ends and where people are kind of doing normal life again. And it's the pragmatic element that allows that to be the case, right? It's different with a respiratory, you know, infection because of the way it spreads. But we've been dealing with this for a long, long time. And I think if people can can kind of fall back to good self-care, self-care is self-confidence. Self-care is a discipline. Self-care is recognizing the benefits of looking out for oneself as well as others. And then obviously it gets into much more detail than that. But I think if we can learn the lesson of self-value and refinement, um, so people call it like self-cultivation, that we can refine our experience, that we can actually improve our quality of life beyond the basic needs. I think that's the opportunity we have ahead of us is that I think rather than trying to just keep our heads above water, um, which I think is and I don't think it's even necessarily the American way, but it's certainly part of the American way, which is like if you say, hi, how are you doing? And people say, oh, I'm so busy, right? It's like we measure our value by how busy we are. And clearly, I'm hoping, I guess, I don't want to make assumptions for people, but I hope people are finding that they don't need quality of life measured by how busy they are. Um, and I think that will be a good fallback position. And I think that's what gives me the most hope is is understanding that this has revealed what we, the challenges we have in our society. We, we have valuations that are not consistent with what we're seeking. But when we're seeking fulfillment, you know, finances certainly are a key player in that. But to suggest that that's the only one to pursue is, is a challenge within our society, for sure. The concept that people need to be working three jobs to meet and make ends meet, we can improve upon this. We can have fulfillment and people can engage in different areas and have fulfillment from those different areas. But we don't need to do it at the cost of other people's quality of life. That's where I guess my hope is, is that we'll start to realize that we can we can do a lot more than we might think. Um, that we the, the life that we might have had, in, had envisioned of 2020 when it was 40 years ago type of thing is more accessible than we might realize. 
but we don't need to invent our way out of this situation. We need to go back to the principles of what really a good life is. So a simplified version of Maslow's hierarchy is people want to feel safe, they want to feel valued, they want to feel loved. And so safety is about the physical component. Is your body safe? Is there a roof over your head? Is there, you know, are the stressors uh, in play? Are they, you know, reasonably addressed? Valued is where um, it becomes more complicated because that's where kind of we have our ego. And so what is value? How do we assess fulfillment? And um, and love is more ethereal, but but people get it. It's connected. Being connected to people, being connected to nature, being connected to our, you know, our pets, being connected to something that kind of brings us joy, right? So even if it's a hobby that we go, oh, I created this, I cultivated this, and I refined this, and I got better at it, and so which is, I would hope a lot of dancers would re, would connect with. So if we can fall back to those kind of elements, as like, am I safe? You know, what are my values as far as fulfillment goes? That's probably the biggest challenge. And then connected, and you know, people should know they're connected, even though they may not feel it all the times, and so it's hard to trust. But people should definitively know that there's a connection there. Um, you're connected to the food you eat. You're connected to the people around you. Our value system can kind of put us in denial in that space. So then the values is where we can spend more time on and kind of digest all the factors. So that would be where I would have hope. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are, from the conversations I've had with people anyway, taking the time to take stock and think about what really matters. I, I'm seeing that actually a lot in the dance community Good, with respect to people really valuing the joy of dancing itself and the, the friends that they've made along the way. So yes, I hope what you hope for as well, that people really take the time to think about what really matters. Yep. And knowing that, like you said, this will end, there will be an end to it and we will get back to life. The question is, do we want it to be the same normal that we came into it? Right. What changes can we make in this time? I agree. Well, thank you so much, John. I really, really appreciate your time and your expertise. I have so many more questions for you <laughs> about, <laughs> I know you and I have chatted about like the WHO and healthcare policy. And I think those may be really interesting things to explore in other conversations. But I think what you shared here is really helpful for people right now as kind of an update on where we stand with this virus, this outbreak. Now that we're a little more into it, we have better understanding um, and what it means for us moving forward. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. It was enjoyable. John is incredibly knowledgeable, and he makes sure to stay up to date on the details of what's happening during this pandemic. He's thoughtful and cautious about the information that is coming out about the virus, the disease, and how it gets transmitted. But I also love how thoughtful he is about healthcare more broadly. I've had the chance to chat with him over drinks or a meal about the need for healthcare reform, and you get a taste of some of that in our discussion here. This outbreak has shed a light on a lot of the weaknesses in our healthcare system, from how we diagnose and treat patients, to our healthcare infrastructure, to our healthcare policy. But as John points out, this is also an opportunity to think about not only how we treat people medically, but how we treat ourselves personally. Self-care is important whether there is a public health crisis or not, and it is critical to our well-being. And part of that, as John notes, is how we value ourselves and our time. This outbreak has forced many of us to slow down, and in a culture where value is often measured by busyness, this can be an extra challenging situation. 
Again, we'll talk more about emotional and psychological well-being in next week's episode with Divi, but I hope we all think about how we care for and value ourselves and others during this time. We need to be safe and do our best to keep ourselves and others healthy and stay connected to one another through this period. Don't forget, this podcast is here to help our community stay connected, so please share your pandemic experience with me. Go to thenakedtruthwcs.com slash COVID for instructions on how to contact me. That's thenakedtruthwcs.com forward slash C-O-V-I-D. In the meantime, share your thoughts on this episode with me and your fellow listeners. You can post a comment on the website, you can respond to our post on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at the Naked Truth WCS, and if you really want to reach me, the best way to do that is by following me on Twitter at Naked Truth WCS. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, I've made all of our episodes from the very first one available for you to catch up on, re-listen to, or share with someone new. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook. And more importantly, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Most importantly, please be safe, healthy, and well. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric, and that's The Naked Truth. So it's it's hard not to, uh, I mean, just yeah, be devastated by by that concept. Hi, just spread across the screen. Oh, yeah. she just activated Siri. Hang on. <laughs> That's a talented cat. You've trained you trained her well in a few she weeks. She loves walking across my screen. She's like, nope, I'm more important. There she goes. Well, um, I was thinking more of the Siri part. Activating Siri is pretty oh, yeah. talented. I, I can't even do that. I don't. Even. <laughs> I don't need Siri. I only, do, I only do when it's accidental. I only have one iPad, but it's like I always seem to activate Siri when I don't need it. Right? I'll be saying something else to Jeannie, and all of a sudden she's like, how can I help you? And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you don't actually help me when I want it. but <laughs> Right, right. <yeah. laughs>